Good evening and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly press, current events, and media analysis program. My name is Jim Dwyer, <clears throat> and ha-ha, how the tables have turned. It is Dick Whaley who is looking for parking at the moment, and uh, he will be joining us shortly. It's, of course, that special, magical, happy time of year in Ann Arbor known as the Art Fair, and uh, if you have any business to do downtown, well, you can forget about it pretty much for the remainder of the week, unless uh, a little foot traffic is to your liking, because parking will be at a premium, and uh, you're not going to be able to drive and park anywhere near the downtown area, as, of course, residents of Ann Arbor well know. And as I just discovered. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah. You lots know, of I, lots of orange tags out there. Part of it uh, could be connected to the. Uh, they'll be setting up tomorrow. Townie party that's going on at Northview, uh, Thayer, Washington area tonight. Oh, that's true. And WCBN has a table over there as well. There are a bunch of uh, community organizations over there. A last uh, breath of townie only uh, related fun. And by the way, Steve Riley and the Mamu Playboys are absolutely fantastic. Uh, I've seen them a number of times in New Orleans. This guy does rock and zydeco about as well as it can be done. And uh, he's a heck of an act, and you can see him tonight for absolutely nothing. So that's a uh, <coughs> musical tip from the good folks on Gray Matters down here at WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. <coughs> Well, obviously, saw some very interesting stuff this week. You know, we have a, a bank closing, all of the depression, a run on the bank. Yeah. FDIC has to take over. Uh, this is the ninth largest bank in America. All these problems with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all that stuff. Who knows what's going on? But uh, let's just give George Bush a brain damage award. He's always worthy of a couple. Uh, what the heck? Uh, a couple of top Iraqi officials uh, asked for a timetable for withdrawal uh, as part of the uh, negotiations over the permanent basing concept that the neoconservatives have come up for regarding Iraq. And Bush turns them down. Uh, this is uh, the old adage from the Vietnam War that uh, Senator George Aiken once famously said, let's declare victory and get out. Uh, Bush is unable to do that, though. Um, and, of course, we saw just this weekend uh, one of the worst attacks on American troops in Afghanistan in quite some time. Uh, and that's part of the new uh, pattern in which the war in Afghanistan is uh, becoming a little more dangerous for the uh, our American troops than the war in Iraq. Yet we seem to have seven times the number of troops in Iraq. Uh, does George Bush know the difference between the two countries? Uh, I think not. And it's pretty frightening when you have uh, James Baker and Warren Christopher as part of a War Powers Commission. Let's, let's see what they officially call themselves. The co-chairman of the National War Powers Commission. Those two men, by the way, uh, just to remind you, were the secretaries of state for Presidents Bush the first and Clinton, yeah, respectively. And uh, essentially were back-to-back secretaries of state, as I recall. Yes. Christopher left um, 
after the first term and was taken over by Madeline Not-So-Bright, Albright. Warren Christopher, of course, is an old sort of war horse of the Democratic Party and a sort of an apparatchik and the concept of bipartisanship. But James Baker, um, while he actually was a fairly good Secretary of State, has some remarkable connections to the war in Iraq. <laughs> um, one of the most interesting things I, I read about the war in Iraq comes from a London Review of Books article dated the 21st of April 2005, Blood for Oil is the title of it, and it goes into the details of the the oil issue uh, regarding our involvement in Iraq. And of course, at this point in the, in the war, this was after the second year anniversary, and the insurgency was beginning to grow in uh, bloodiness, deadliness, etc. But James Baker has some very interesting connections that I figured I'd inform the public about because I don't think the mainstream media bothered. Um, just to praise James Baker before I get into this, I mean, he did believe fairly, um, um, you know, diligently in the concept of negotiations. He wasn't what I would call an extremist or hawkish kind well, of... the Madrid talks over yeah. the Middle East would never have happened without his insistence on actually compelling Israel to participate. So he did some good things. Um, but it's interesting that in December of 2003, and I'm quoting from the article, and by the way, this is just sort of a... It's not too... Sh I'm not too quite uh, clear who actually wrote this article. There's no author of it. I think it's a series of writers that regularly contribute to the London Review of Books. Anyway, that's dated uh, the 21st of April 2005, and you can probably find that on lrb.uk, uh, since it's a British uh, publication. They write, in December of 2003, the administration trotted out Bush family consigliere James Baker, the consummate oil man, as special presidential envoy to restructure Iraq's $130 billion debt. Baker's law firm represents Halliburton. Baker Hughes, his old oil services company, was promised the contract to restore second-tier oil, oil fields in Iraq. He's a member of the Politburo of the Carlisle Group in which it's estimated that he owns an equity of $180 million, a sliver of the $17.5 billion portfolio. Baker's mission, as we now know, is less about debt forgiveness than about cutting a deal for the Carlyle Group, which was to receive a $1 billion investment from Kuwait as a quid pro quo for restructuring Iraq's liabilities, thereby guaranteeing Kuwait and various oil companies Billions of dollars in war reparations still due from Iraq following the 1991 Gulf War. Good business if you can get it. And, of course, it goes into the detail of uh, it's a very lengthy article, uh, highly recommended because it goes into the detail of the difficulty that American oil companies have now uh, globally in securing oil uh, for sale. And, of course, what they generally rely on 
at this point uh, due to the fact that uh, their own reserves, and I'll just quote from the article on this, between 1973, and they're talking here about uh, Shell, BP, Amoco, uh, ExxonMobil, and Chevron Texaco. Uh, many remnants, by the way, of the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> Shell is a Dutch-British combo, and BP is actually uh, an, an arrangement between an, a, a remnant of the Standard Oil Company and British Petroleum. <laughs> they, of course, have carved up oil contracts throughout the Middle East uh, in quite some time. But between 1970, 1953 and 1972, their share of concession areas, this is globally, fell from 64% to 24%. Even after the mergers of the late 1990s, the super major oil companies directly produced only 35% of their sales and only controlled 4% of oil reserves. So what they do, of course, is they go into quote-unquote partnerships with the national oil companies of Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Libya, Nigeria, Nigeria, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at a chart, the top 10, quote, oil companies in the world are not actually these seven major oil companies that we think of back here who are, you know, Exxon, I think, reported quarterly profits last year of $40 billion several times. This was actually, by the way, before the price of oil started going up where it's at. It's interesting to note, by the way, that the 4th of March was the date that oil broke the $100 barrel price. That isn't that long ago. And, of course, it skyrocketed uh, about $25 a barrel in recent weeks, thanks to the saber-rattling of the Bush administration and Israel regarding a war with Iran. We've had war exercises. We had these fascinating uh, missile... Missile tests and then yeah. some uh, enhancing, uh, a digital enhancing of yes. the photos of said test. <laughs> Conveniently, and who did the doctoring is anybody's guess. Right. But both it, of them have motives. Exactly. To exaggerate <laughs> the number of missiles tested. And blame the other for having done so. Yeah. Partners in crime. There are no... No crimes. Honorable men. Just business. Uh, among thieves. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. But anyway, this Warren Christopher uh, James Baker report says, put the war powers back where they belong. Well, my recollection... Gee, that's Congress. ...is that they do belong in Congress. That's what Article 1 says. Uh, you can go back, by the way, and read the Federalist Papers. And I know that John Jay and James Madison both specifically went into great detail as to why the war powers' power should rest in the hands of Congress, because they talked about the biases and passions and tendency for, uh, quote, monarchs and kings to uh, engage in warfare for uh, interests that are outside the, quote, national interest. And anybody that would suggest that our war in Iraq is somehow in America's national interest really is quite uh, naive. Uh, this is a classic money-making operation by a lot of well-connected corporations that have connections to this web of neoconservative corporate um, leveraged, which is an, a word that we're hearing a lot, companies um, 
most of them held in private hands, that are making enormous sums of money off the war. By the way, that article in the London Review of Book, Books notes that Dick Cheney had been paid $44 million uh, by Halliburton uh, this decade for uh, services rendered. Well, he's rendered a few services for the, the good people of Halliburton, and it's good to know, by the way, that Dick Cheney's recently been given the uh, ticker seal of approval. Uh, the word on the report is that his heart is in as good a condition as a 67-year-old man who's had four heart attacks can be, hmm. which I suppose leaves something to be desired. <clears throat> but uh, interesting that there's this uh, conversation about returning the War Powers Act to where they belong in Congress, because currently in both Pakistan and in Israel, we're seeing a lot of uh, political confusion with regards to in Israel... Uh, Corruption scandals involving Ehud Olmert in Pakistan, of course, the fragile coalition seems to be working backwards and is more focused on getting rid of uh, Musharraf than uh, any forward steps that the uh, disparate members of that coalition would wish to pursue. And in a couple of articles uh, by Farhan Bukhari and uh, Tobias Buck in the uh, recent uh, last week's worth of Financial Times, there's some very interesting and strange seeming suggestions from unnamed American officials in one case and uh, from an Israeli professor in another that we need a strong man, we need a leader, we need some sort of uh, large figure here. The uh, unnamed U.S. official speaking on Pakistan is that... Uh, says this, uh, the problem that is that Pakistan needs some kind of centralized control and authority. Well, gee, that's why the army has run that country for so many of its 61 years mm -hmm. of uh, independent stature. Uh, Israeli uh, history professor, Professor Doran, that doesn't say which with which university he's affiliated here, uh, compares the uh, political crisis in Israel to France's Fourth Republic in which it went a period from 1946 to 1958 where it went through 20 prime ministers until uh, de Gaulle returned and uh, stabilized it with his strong leadership. His strong nose. <laughs> and uh, His Roman nose. Indeed. Uh, but uh, this uh, professor suggests, interestingly, that, well, you know, perhaps Israel should follow the French model and go for a more powerful executive uh, chief executive figure because of the fractitious and segmented nature of Israeli coalition politics, where you've got the moderates and the slightly left of centers uh, forming bizarre alliances with the extreme rightist Shas party, mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, crumbling at the light, lightest sign of uh, progress or pressure towards any sort of peace settlement or water negotiation uh, that uh, is obviously so important. Yeah, and it's interesting that while this has all been going on, all this saber-rattling in the Middle East, and of course, you know, the situation in Pakistan can only be charitably be characterized as a situation that continues to deteriorate. Ehud, or Ehud Almert is just in... There just seems to be new scandal after new scandal involving the guy, so how long he's going to be around as leader of Israel, which, of course, has contributed to these problems. Uh, the the, the saber-rattling uh, that the Israeli government's been engaged in over the past month has been primarily by the prospective new leader of uh, that party, um, 
and I forget exactly what they call themselves. It was sort of a spinoff of Likud. It's not actually Likud. Kadima. Kadima. Yeah, that's it's it. uh, Ariel Sharon's brainchild to tear himself away from uh, Likud. By the way, uh, has he passed away yet, or is he? You know, still I was just thinking about that uh, last night. As <laughs> my uh, uh, early morning newspaper arrived. Uh, he still persists in a vegetative state. Hmm. Uh, for all practical intents and purposes, Ariel Sharon is dead. But uh, uh, in Israeli politics, nothing is too unusual. And who knows, maybe in his uh, state of coma, he'll make a brilliant run for re-election. Probably better that than Benjamin Netanyahu. But according to recent polls in Israel, three out of five Israelis want Omar to resign immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's in he's toast as they say and as for Sharon perhaps he can <laughs> I saw an interesting article several weeks ago about the <clears throat> some stone tablets that have been found in in Oh, right, yeah. that question well, they don't question but they suggest that the 3-day resurrection from the dead was uh, predicted and forecast uh many years before Christ was ever born, and that this convenient myth was then utilized. Perhaps Sharon can utilize the myth, <laughs> declare himself dead, and then... That might be too messianic for most of the uh, Orthodox Jews. <laughs> resuscitate himself, and boy, all sorts of strange religious things could happen here in the United States. <laughs> <clears throat> no doubt. In fact, speaking of James Baker earlier, as as much as I admired, uh, in, in a sense, you know, I mean, clearly the man is uh, in uh, corporate uh, hog heaven up yeah. to his eyebrows. But uh, uh, there are some admirable uh, qualities to him as a, a diplomat and a statesman, I suppose. Um, but he, too, was one of the many... Uh, well, not so secret, uh, end-timers in the Bush administration, uh, people who actually believe or subscribe to a philosophy of end times, that the cataclysmic battle at the end of the world uh, will happen in our own lifetimes. And I think that that's probably a disturbing thing to have floating through the thoughts of those in such high places. Well, he's certainly a, a kind of an, a historical figure that he's reminiscent of is, is Clark Clifford. He's this kind of yeah. guy behind the scenes that has an amazing amount of power and influence and seems to pop up uh, from time to time when Pear Bush needs some work done. <laughs> and of course, Baker contributed heavily to the selection of George Bush W., by the uh, yeah. Supreme Court because he was involved in the vote recount. <laughs> the joking reference in the article that you referred there to uh, to the uh, Baker as uh, consigliere mm -hmm. uh, is, of course, uh, quite apt. But uh, speaking of people who pop up from time to time, what about people who pop down or pop over or pop out like some poppin' fresh dough boy? Uh-oh. Phil Graham. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, talk about... I am a big I supporter <laughs> of Bob Dole. I thought he was dead, too. But no, it turns out that he's been a vice chairman for Swiss Bank, UBS, and apparently made some uh, disparaging comments about the American people on, uh, in an interview with the Washington Times. 
which raises a lot of interesting questions, of course. It's a right-wing newspaper. It's owned by the Moon Publishing Empire. Uh, it's the CIA's leak sheet of choice. It's obviously the conservative voice of mainstream mm -hmm. uh, media in a print uh, outlet anyway. And so you have to wonder why they're going to run an article like this. Well, of course, McCain has since distanced himself from... Graham, who is serving, I guess, as an economic advisor. Yeah. Uh, Phil Graham called the Top United States. Top economic advisor. Yeah. Us. Called the United States, quote, a nation of whiners that is in a mental recession. Well, you know, I suppose if you're That's connected. That's a good description to... of Phil Graham. <laughs> <laughs> if you're connected to a Swiss bank, uh, then you, you, you get accustomed to a degree of comfort and uh, privilege that might you know, make others appear to be whiners, you know, normal working people who have to actually wake up and utilize their physical strength and their uh, emotional reserve to get through the day without uh, striking another fellow citizen. Um, mental recession. Well, I would say that the mental recession, you see, it's what's funny, Bush administration. it's been the past 40 years of the American people without the whining. The problem maybe is that there isn't enough whining at least the people that are, that whine the most are not heard. Right. Uh, everyone else is more interested in the latest gadget from Apple or... Which humorously turned know, out not to fully work on the YouTube data, or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah, we live in an entertainment culture. Um, obviously, the gaffe there, and, and there is a famous uh, phrase that a gaffe is when you speak an element of truth. Well, there is an element of truth in what he says, but the problem there is the mental recession part. <laughs> um and, of course, Obama was able to make hay out of it, and McCain had to quickly um, scold Phil Graham and maybe even send him into the corner for <laughs> 10 minutes of detention. Uh, as for the Swiss bank and Phil Graham's connections to uh, the Republican establishment, they're well-known. Wendy Graham is an incredible <laughs> power broker behind the scenes. And as for Swiss banks, um, yeah, many of them are somewhat concerned about the uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac uh, situation, you know, this whole... Which I think probably most Americans are confused about. They're very confused about it because the, the problem at this point is the debate that's being ha uh, held is not, I don't think, been terribly enlightening. By the way, uh, Paul Krugman has a superb uh, article, or editorial, I should say, uh, about the situation um, in uh, today's uh, New York Times that hopefully the Ann Arbor News has picked up on, because I think that this is when Paul Krugman is at his best, when he talks specifically about economic issues, since he is an economist. And he's sort of a centrist. He's not he bashes Bush on the political end of things, but he is sort of articulating the Barney Frank line that the situation is being um, exaggerated for reasons that are unclear. The history of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is, is fascinating, but when this comes in conjunction, by the way, with the ninth largest bank uh, in America failing over the weekend in which the FDIC had to seized the reins today, and they had to open up doors in, Ca in California, and there were lines around the block. That is right out of the Great Depression. And the housing crisis in America is just starting. 
if you want to know the truth. Uh, this this uh, whole situation is, you know, Barney Frank's got it right. This isn't really a problem of Fanny and Freddie. Uh, Fanny and Freddie sounds like a burlesque show uh, opening near you sometime soon uh, with... Uh, well, Ben Bernanke uh, trying to keep the music going, and this is what this is all about. Uh, these excesses in the the entire mortgage and financial marketing that was going on in uh, the early part of the decade under uh, uh, quite a number of assists from Alan Greenspan, who, of course, has this hidden agenda behind the scenes of, quote, deregulation. Um, I would argue that he... Uh, fooled the American people specifically in 2004 by continuing to lower interest rates when the opposite should have been happening. This was allowed to reelect George Bush, who was who actually was in big trouble on e- economics. Uh, Bush was at this time in 2004 uh, the first president since I wanted to say J. Edgar Hoover, but it was actually Herbert Hoover who. Uh, was going to suffer a net job loss during his his uh, right. first presidential term. By the way, there would have been a net job loss during George Bush's first presidential term, but conveniently the Bureau of Labor Statistics came up with 119,000 jobs in the month of January 2005, and this allowed Bush to claim that we had created a net gain of jobs of 37,000. <laughs> I have talked at length about how unemployment statistics have been manipulated by the Republican Party. I hasten to add that uh, Elaine Chao, uh, who's I think the only member of Bush's cabinet that's been there the entire time, is the wife of Mitch McConnell, uh, minority leader, majority leader, the Republican senator from Kentucky, who is a very reliable um, supporter of the entire uh, GOP agenda. Obviously, the uh, jobs that were created in 2004 were part of a housing bubble. Um, The problem is that there are no buyers for these houses. And while Congress has been battling back and forth uh, with the administration about coming up with a, quote, plan, uh, the situation has just continued to deteriorate with no end in sight. The facts are simple. Uh, and this doesn't even go into the issue of how badly the airlines, you know, that situation, General Motors and Ford. I mean, there's open discussions of bankruptcy. Um, Anheuser-Busch bought today by a uh, consortium from the mighty nation of Belgium. <laughs> That iconic American brand. What's next? Coca-Cola? This, of course, is part of the declining American dollar. Um, this country is in deep doo-doo, and it, it really is the, the accumulation of 35 to 40 years of deregulation, quote-unquote tax cuts. Uh, they have uh, new statistics show that the consumer... Total consumer credit uh, in America is now up to two and a half trillion dollars. Uh, of a trillion of it is quote revolving credit, which are those month to month unpaid credit card bills that never get paid. Um, and then you begin to hear about the shenanigans of these Wall Street banks. 
that uh, literally are, uh, you know, their conduct in bundling these mortgages and loaning out this money to people that paid no money down and essentially, um, I think the word that, that sums it up so well in the Paul Krugman um, column that's perfectly sums it up is, is he writes Fannie and Freddie while t- tightly regulated in terms of their lending haven't been required to put up enough capital that is money raised by selling stock rather than borrowing this means that even a small decline in the value of their assets can leave them underwater quote owing more than they own owing more than they own that is the fundamental problem uh in the American economy today, uh, too many Americans owe more than they own, and the number of houses uh, rumored to be in this predicament, by the way, is 9 million units. The number of foreclosures have gone up by 50% since last year. The biggest mystery is how on earth did the stock market go up in October of 2007? <laughs> I have no idea, but... Uh, these problems are not going to go away, and needless to say, the Bush administration is trying to cooperate to some extent because this is an election year. And when they saw those results from Mississippi and Louisiana and Denny Hastert's old seat in Illinois, they realized that they are going to get beat in a Herbert Hoover FDR-style landslide, um, and it could be that bad. And the amazing thing is the Iraq War— while it hasn't vanished as an issue, it has receded because now, you know, what concerns Americans are the economy, quote-unquote, gas prices, jobs, um, the precariousness of pe- people's jobs. And uh, we're living in a very scary time. When you hear that housing is in the worst situation since the Great Depression and you begin seeing a bank a la It's a Wonderful Life. Right. We all know that one. It's a wonderful movie, but beneath the happy message is uh, a serious predicament that happened back uh, in the Great Depression when American capitalism uh, collapsed. And one of the things that's the most outrageous about the Fannie Freddie problem is that this is a classic example of what's wrong with American capitalism. Profits are privatized. Losses are socialized. Right. And if the federal uh, taxpayers have to pick up a $5 trillion tab, which I think is overstating the case, but uh, it could get into those kinds of numbers, trillions of dollars. Gee, where is that money coming from? Uh, Has Bush raised taxes to pay for Afghanistan and Iraq? I don't think so. And uh, it's, it's it's not a good situation. And I, I Especially have, when we're locked into a pattern whereby we'll be continuing to bleed trillions of dollars into Afghanistan and Iraq for the foreseeable future. And then c- contemplate the demographics. You know, we're talking here about the fact that in uh, 2011, the first of the baby boomers begin to retire. So the infrastructures related to Medicare and Social Security... Social Security, by the way, is, is itself solvent. The problem is, is that the government has borrowed so much money from the Social Security Trust Fund to finance all these wars that uh, Congress never seems to declare. That's the problem. 
Now, it's always uh, good to know that the Queen of England, God Save the Queen, is uh, being uh, given a, a little cost-of-living adjustment. They are maintaining an $80 million